I guess the question is, how worried are you? Look, I'm worried enough that I'm looking at colleges outside of the U.S. for my kids. That's Asha Rangappa. I'm Margaret Sullivan. And this is American Crisis, a show that asks the question, can journalism save democracy? I'll be looking at this question with the help of some wonderful guests, with an emphasis on how media and politics have changed between two hinge events in American history, the Watergate scandal in the 1970s, which brought down an American president and changed politics forever, and January 6th, 2021. By the way, all our episodes live over at margaretsullivan.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff, including written pieces and discussion threads. You can also support the show there or sign up for free, so each episode of American Crisis lands right in your email. That's margaretsullivan.substack.com. My guest today is Asha Rangappa. She's a brilliant lawyer, and she is a former FBI special agent. She teaches and writes and talks about disinformation and misinformation and the rule of law and a lot of things that are on our mind these days. I think you'll find her observations worrisome, but also in some ways optimistic or at least giving some cause for hope. So there's a bunch of stuff I really want to talk with you about, Asha, and I thought I'd like to plunge in just by asking you whether you think that American democracy is in crisis right now, and if you could tell me why you do or don't think so. Oh, my gosh, that is a huge question to start off your podcast with. I know. I definitely think that American democracy is in crisis. I mean, I think that is evident in so many different areas of our society, you know, not the least of which is our elections. Um, I mean, obviously, we saw what happened on January 6th. But even beyond that, the rule of law more generally. And really, I think the basic building block of democracy, which is a shared consensus, a shared consensus at, at least about what is up for debate. It's not that there can't be disagreements, but, you know, we are not really inhabiting a shared reality with our fellow citizens. And as a result, we have a an acute breakdown of social trust. This is something that I teach about a lot. And I think that that does not bode well for the future of our democracy. So do you believe that we're in a, I mean, maybe this is a little glib, but I'd love to hear you address this. Do you think we in the United States are in a post-truth society? Yeah, that phrase gets used a lot. I don't know exactly what that means. Um, I th- I'm not in it. I, I still believe in the truth. Yes, exactly. So I don't know if that means that we're just beyond, past the truth or if, you know, that's... I think that we are in a, an era where the traditional guardrails and arbiters for truth are no longer there. So for better or worse, right? So, you know, it used to be that traditional journalism served as sort of a gatekeeper. Right. You know, that it let in, you know, what what I said before, kind of the stories that 
on which we had consensus about uh, both the facts and the things that were up for debate and the stuff that didn't make it through that gateway remained at the fringes. Right. So it was a shared consensus, but I think we could ask whose consensus was it, right? Right. And so, I mean, that that that's it's a really interesting question to think about who those gatekeepers were in the media. I mean, they were white men for the most part. Exactly. And so there is a way, you know, I'm not um, saying that that was a perfect model for sure, because that meant that there were certain things that were excluded from that sphere of debate and discussion. And in addition to things that didn't make it that were ex- too extreme or, you know, not worthy of debate, there were voices and questions that were marginalized outside of it because of those gatekeepers, right? With social media, what we have is a situation where those gatekeepers disappear. And so the benefits of this are that, you know, th- that the sphere of debate and controversy has been democratized. We have brought in things that we weren't willing to look at before, things like police brutality, right, that remained in the shadows or even the Me Too movement. All of those were able to be brought in. And in you know, globally, it allowed for more democratization of voices. You know, you had the Arab Spring, for example. But I think the dark side of that is that everything is now able to become mainstreamed. And so there's just no way to police out things like conspiracy theories or um, alternative narratives and the ability to curate these different you know, spheres, eco media ecosystems, I think is what fragments us from even kind of sharing that reality. Right. So, you know, I'm trying to look at this question of can journalism save democracy, which is, you know, in a way sort of a crazy question, granted, through the lens of two major events in American history, Watergate and January 6th, 2021, the insurrection at the Capitol roughly 50 years apart. So I wondered if, you know, and I know that you've thought a lot about Watergate and certainly lived through the more recent horrible event, as we all did. Maybe you could just reflect a little bit on what has changed in, particularly in our institutions, including the media, but also government and and trust in those institutions in that 50 years. Like what, you know, that's a big question. You could write a book about it. But you know, what comes to mind among the major changes in that five-decade period? Well, as a lawyer and as someone who teaches national security law, what comes to mind first is that in the post-Watergate period, there was such low trust in government that it actually spurred a lot of reforms, right? This is when we get a lot of reforms. For example, the Ethics in Government Act of 1978, which creates things like the Independent Council. Um, you have a complete reform of and an oversight of the intelligence community of the FBI and CIA. You have the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So there was, in many ways, I think, a very productive outcome that came out. Uh, it was it was almost a healthy distrust of government, right? And and there was, you know, a way of here's what we need to do to shore up these guardrails so that we can trust it again. So that when we find out that the government is 
electronically surveilling people. We know that it's been done through some sort of process and that, you know, um, there's been balancing and, and, and partial adjudication. I think now there is a, the distrust is not entirely based on fact. I mean, Watergate happened. You know, it was a, it was a bad. It was an actual thing. It was an actual yeah. thing. It was bad, um, and you know that is not what what we want. Um, as as someone who's in the Oval Office, now the distrust is based on things that are often not true. Right? There's a distrust of our public health officials. There's a distrust of the voting process because of false claims of voter fraud. So I think that's one thing. And then the second part of that is that. Those narratives are disempowering. And for maybe as I'm thinking about it, there was a way in which our policymakers and the American public felt empowered after Watergate to create these reforms and structures and kind of and strengthen our democratic institutions. Now people feel disempowered. And so they are seeking anti-democratic means of addressing what they perceive to be um, you know, corrupt governments, corrupt law enforcement, mm. and all of that. So that's, I think, two really divergent views and and reactions. Right. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It, when you're talking about the reforms that happened after Watergate, I was flashing to what happened at the New York Times after a scandal there, which was, you know, the the Jason Blair plagiarism and fabrication, this reporter who did all these terrible things. And one of the things that the Times did in reaction to that, similar to what you're talking about, these reforms, was to institute the public editor role, which mm. was a, an ombudsman and is a role that I I played there and, and no longer exists. So it's interesting to think about how reforms and efforts to sort of shore up the guardrails do happen in the wake of really bad things. And then sometimes people get, I don't know, bored or with them or don't like the reforms or they they don't always last, which is interesting. So, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, since you think so much about disinformation and certainly have followed what's happened with Fox News and the various lawsuits, particularly the Dominion voting system suit, to what extent has the coming of, you know, the flourishing of right-wing media added to this whole picture that we're looking at now where we don't have a consensus, where we don't have a consensus of, how did you put it, a, a consensus of fact? Right. There's no consensus either about facts or what is up for debate, right? So that's right. why, I mean, I when I was a contributor for CNN, for example, I was often put in sort of a debate-like you know, scenario with somebody from the Trump administration. And it was just I didn't it, you can't even respond like you can't have a conversation um, in that in that kind of environment because, you know, you don't even know where to start. You're just talking about completely different things. And I think that this is what we see with Fox News and now what is a larger right wing media ecosystem. There are some scholars who've studied this ecosystem in a book called Network Propaganda. And what they find is that our media is 
polarized, right? That, you know, in other words, there are definitely media outlets that are left leaning and there's media outlets which are right leaning. But what they find is that the polarization is asymmetrical. And the right wing media ecosystem is not only farther to the extreme, but also untethered from the center media outlets. And the reason that this is important, they point out, is that traditional media, again, has some of those self-policing guardrails about truth, right? You, I mean, you worked at the New York Times. The New York Times can't get away with lying because other papers, its competitors within its own ecosystem, like the Washington Post, will call you out on it. There are going to be journalists who are going to say, I'm not going to work here. In other words, there's internal and external checks. What they say is that in this in this right-wing media ecosystem, there's no policing, either internally or externally. And therefore, there is no constraint on them just delivering what they call identity-confirming narratives to that audience. So it's just a self-contained bubble. Like, those people, when they right. leave Fox, they're not going to come to... They're not going to start reading the New York Times and watching CNN. They're going to go farther right to OANN and Newsmax. And that's what I think is really dangerous. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things I think has changed so much in that 50-year period is whether people, you know, sort of the trust. It's funny how you talked about in the post-Watergate era, trust in the government was low. But in that era, trust in the news media was actually high, really high. It was in the high 70s percentile. And now, of course, it's very low. And something I've heard people say recently is, well, we shouldn't be so worried about whether mainstream media or big journalism is trusted. We should worry about whether it's trustworthy, you know, drawing that distinction. Because if we've sort of lost the ability to talk to 40% of the country, but we're still telling the truth, you know, is it incumbent on the news media? And I'd be love to hear your your view of this. Is it incumbent on the news media to adjust itself so it can speak to that 40% of the country? Or should it just kind of keep doing what it's doing or something else? I mean, is there some way for the media, for journalists to reach or try to reach people who don't want to hear what they have to say? I don't think so. Because Again, using that the model that I just mentioned before, if people are seeking identity confirming narratives, unless, you know, the New York Times is really like, I don't know what you mean by do they adjust themselves? Because unless they adjust themselves to create the narrative that the people want to hear, which will, by definition, include untruths, then I'm not really sure how it's going to be successful. Well, I'll give you an example, and I'd love to know what you think about this. When CNN fairly recently put Donald Trump in a town hall setting with his supporters or certainly right-leaning people in the audience, I think that that could be seen as an effort to appeal to that audience, which mainstream media has basically lost. It's saying, we're going to put your guy that you love so much, give him a, you know, a platform and surround him with his supporters who are going to cheer everything he says, whether it's false or not, that's a kind of adjustment toward, I mean, could be seen as an adjustment toward reaching people who are who have been out of reach. Is that a good idea? 
Well, I guess my question there would be, it's. Po- I mean, I'm not really sure what they achieved in that. Well, exactly. I mean, in other words, like, yes, it's true that maybe some people who would not ordinarily have watched CNN tuned in that night to watch Trump. But Trump didn't say anything different on CNN that he would have said on Fox. In other words, CNN, yes, got them, but that was a profit you know, point, I guess, that they got some audience members watching that they didn't have before. But I don't know from a journalistic standpoint whether there was any value added. Like they didn't they didn't teach these people anything new. They didn't reveal anything new to them or anyone else. And I think what this gets to is, in a lot of ways, the tension right now in journalism between news and entertainment. Because what I think the adjustment that CNN made was to provide, to entice people to watch the Trump show on CNN instead of whatever other network they normally watch. I mean, that's great. You can just, you know, you could parade him around in all the different networks. I'm sure that same audience will come watch MSNBC um, if Trump is on there too. You know what I'm saying? I don't know that that means that MSNBC is reaching those people because as soon as Trump is off, I'm pretty sure they're not watching MSNBC anymore. I don't think any of the people who tuned in last Wednesday are now suddenly like CNN um, viewers who are who are now like, you know, absorbing all of CNN's, you know, great reporting, frankly, on, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine or, or whatever. They have gone back to their regular media diet. Right. Exactly. And actually, it didn't really do CNN any favors either, because while they did have a substantial, although not insanely huge audience that night, it dropped right back to its previous, you know, it's not like people stuck around. I think at most, there could be people who would say, well, CNN isn't as far left as the others because you see at least they gave Trump a platform. But I, I don't know if anybody really thinks that way. Well, I think there there might be, you know, again, to go back to that book, Network Propaganda, I think they estimate that maybe, you know, 15 to 20 percent of Republicans may have one foot in the Fox News world and one foot out. So, you know, they are the ones that might be persuadable. But I suspect that those people are already watching CNN, you know, in other words, in addition to their Fox News or whatever, the people who have one foot in and one foot out, like they're not gaining any. You're not going to get that 30 percent that is in the bubble, except for maybe that one night. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because you tend to have a global perspective about what you think and talk and and write about. I wondered if you could put what's happening in the United States into perspective globally. I mean, how much are the threats to our democracy, um, you know, part of a global trend? And, you know, where does it fit in? Is it is it much less of a problem than it is in other places? Is it all part of this sort of, you know, right-wing populist movement that's 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 growing quickly. I, I, I'd just like to, you know, give us some context from a big picture world perspective. Yeah. So off the top of my head, I can't, you know, I, I can't get into the weeds, but I it's the U.S. is definitely a part of a global trend. I would say democracy is sort of on a spectrum, right? I mean, you can have you could Countries can have, quote unquote, democratic systems that may appear to look like democracies, but actually don't function as one. And then at the very end, at the extreme, you have the robust democracy. And at the other extreme, you have like the authoritarian or totalitarian state. Right. 
But as you move towards that robust democracy, you're going to have less what what they would call fragile democracies or, you know, democracies that are sort of um, facades for more kind of authoritarian type of rule. You know, I would I would put India, for example, in that category that, you know, it's a large world, technically the world's largest democracy. Um, You have a lot of democratic erosion and uh, institutional guardrails and um, delegitimizing of institutions, including the free press, happening there as well. And I think India is actually a pretty good model, you know, in terms of, you know, it's just it seems to me to be like a few steps ahead of where the U.S. is. Um, in further, my, da- further, further, further along, of, I think. Yep. Yes. Right. Um, and I mean, H- Hungary, uh, Turkey, right? Yes. Brazil, to some extent. Yes. And those, you know, are all great examples of, you know, where we are now in the in the rise of sort of authoritarianism is that, you know, these are not the coups of the 70s, right? They are not, you know, I think when we think of um, anti-democratic coups and, and things like that, we think of military coming in, you know, Allende throwing them out, you know, burning down the presidential palace, like all of these like very spectacular things. And as Latin American studies major in college, I studied all of those and I, I know them well. But what you have now is really the weaponization of law, the weaponization of the democratic process itself as a veneer for engaging in anti-democratic activity. So how does that weaponization happen? I mean, that's a fascinating idea. I'd like to understand it. Well, you have people who are who believe that the ends justify the means. Right. So much of our democratic system and processes are based on norms. They're based upon, again, this this consensus, this agreement that we're not going to we're not going to engage in certain kinds of behavior. So to take an example, recently, the expulsion of those three lawmakers or the two lawmakers in Tennessee, that is a weaponization of that democratic process. I mean, they used an actual process that exists, right? It was a process that in the norms of the Tennessee legislature, it had not been utilized because it's so extreme. And yet it was applied in a case where I think most reasonable people would say that these actions did not deserve that. And it was, it's ultimately an, it's a it's a process that exists, but it's ultimately anti-democratic because it disenfranchises the people who voted for those people with it, for those uh, representatives. You know, I would argue that Jim Jordan's weaponization committee right now, you know, in in Congress is another way of using a legitimate institution and a legitimate mechanism in the institution. I mean, imagine that he to take this back to a Watergate comparison, he compares this to the church committee. There could be right. nothing more different than the actual church committee, which really, you know, brought in an oversight and an appropriate check for things that were completely violating civil liberties. And like I said, and enacted like legitimate reforms to strengthen the intelligence community with what is going on right now. I mean, that committee now is like trying to interfere in a state prosecution in New York. I mean, I don't even know what to say about that. So that's that's right. what that looks like. Right. And I mean, it's such Orwellian language to call it a committee that's supposed to, you know, address weaponization when, in fact, that's what what it's it's doing. doing. I mean, it's 
it's a little mind boggling, you know, it's 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 crazy. And I'm not sure that like regular normal people are uh, tuned into any of that. It's like, what are they? I think what you get there is people saying, wow, those all those people in Congress are nuts. They're all fighting with each other. I mean, when I go out and talk to regular voters and people, they're just like they, they have no interest in that kind of crazy thing that they see as infighting. And maybe not too much uh, interest in, you know, parsing out who's right and who's wrong. It's just like Congress people fighting. Yeah. Which and is I mean, and I think the January 6th is sort of the ultimate example of the weaponization of the law that all of that was based on a legal blueprint that was drawn up by a lawyer, John Eastman, a very smart lawyer, a former Supreme Court clerk, former dean of Chapman Law School who literally came up with a way to manipulate the law to provide the veneer of legality to what would have been an attempt to, or what was an attempt to overturn the election of the United States. So those become very difficult to combat because they do have this Jedi mind trick aspect to them. They're hiding. Upside it's, down and inside out. Yeah, they're, they're, it's harder than than... A military coup, because military coup you can watch and you're just like, okay, that that's clearly the military taking over. Here, this is couched in the language of the law and process, and yet right. it is doing something that it shouldn't do. Right. The idea being the election was stolen and now we have to bring a process that's within our language and our laws to address it. It's pretty mind boggling. You know, um, I've written a lot about and I've lived um, the decline of local news and local newspapers. Mm -hmm. And I think your colleague at Yale, Timothy Snyder, said he thinks the decline of of local journalism is one of the biggest threats. He calls it the, the biggest threat to to our democracy, because it, just as you say, you know, it was one way for people to have some kind of shared foundation of of truth and facts. And it's such a paradox because local newspapers and local journalism is actually more trusted, but it's mm -hmm. also financially more threatened. So it does kind of, I mean, maybe it's the expression, all politics is local. Maybe the the answer is local too. We tend to think of it as big and global and and national, but maybe it does kind of come down to ourselves and our neighborhoods. Yeah. And, you know, Putnam talks about he he compares he actually has a sequel to uh, Bowling Alone um, called The Upswing. And what he is does it, is is he, it intended to I don't know that one. Is it is it more positive? It's um, sort of, I think what what he says is he describes the features of our current moment. Right. Um, acute inequality, xenophobia, political polarization, you know, major technological change. And he, he goes through all these things. And so it feels like, OK, yeah, he's he's describing 2023 or 20 whenever you're reading it. Um, and then he says this is the Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. This is really the, the same type of moment that our country was in um, at the turn of the 20th century. And the way that we kind of came out of that uh, was through the progressive era. And 
that that was when many of these, you know, civic organizations and, um, you know, women's suffrage movements and all these things were happening, but they were happening at a local level. Like they were, you know, the farm credit unions and the things where people were banding together around shared interests that were local and specific into, you know, their communities and that these grassroots efforts basically created a momentum that ultimately begins to cascade to much larger things like the the New Deal. And then, of course, post-World War II and, you know, expanding public education, like all of these things. What he says is, to get to the Watergate moment, he he calls it the upswing because he's, he's tracing a curve. And he says, you know, this sense of community going from the me to the we reaches its zenith in 1965 um, with, you know, Civil Rights Act or right after the passage of the Immigration and Nationality Act, all these things. And that what we're seeing, we're, we are have we and have been on a downswing since then. I've but noticed, what he says, yes. But his point is, you know, let's look at what was happening in this upswing and what what we can do. And, and one of those things is this sense of having a stake in the local and being mm. being active in the local. Yeah, that is a great takeaway. So I'll just ask you one more thing. You know, are you hopeful and optimistic or optimistic about the long-term sustainability of American democracy? How I guess the question is, how worried are you? I vacillate. Look, I'm worried enough that I'm looking at colleges outside of the U.S. for my kids um, because that says you know, something. Yeah, because, you know, I I pay attention to what historians and political scientists, you know, are observing about where we are and, um, you know, parallels to the pre-Civil War era and political instability and um, the rhetoric and things like that. On the other hand, I also... There's a part of me that wants to believe that our history has been a series of pendulum swings, that we have a a young generation of very invested people and civically engaged people. I mean, this the, this is the cohort that's turning out now. And I mean, that, you know, Republicans are scared of because they, you know, have been engaging in. They they have start they have had a detrition because their policies have become more and more extreme, and they haven't been counting on this kind of big wave of um, activism and and engagement, and maybe that will help pull that back into the center a little bit. I'm not sure. So so that's where I I go back and forth between being hopeful and then despairing. To be quite right. frank. And I guess it's possible to be hopeful without being truly optimistic either. You know, you can yeah. be sort of grounded in reality and know that things aren't really going in a great direction, but to still be able to work toward a good outcome as as you do. And I thank you for that. So thank you so much. This is a great conversation and very much appreciate your time and your expertise. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Thanks, Asha. One of the many insights I take away from my conversation with Asha is that we're in kind of a tough place in American democracy right now. I thought it was pretty compelling that this brilliant lawyer and former FBI special agent is looking at colleges outside the United States 
as well as inside for her kids. That tells me something about how seriously she takes the troubling questions in our country. I was also taken by her observations about the breakdown and the fraying of social trust in America. And the reason for that, which she identifies as the fact that we don't seem to have a common basis of reality anymore as a people. And of course, the media has so much to do with that. So I'm deeply grateful to Asha for her observations and for the chat we got to have. If you'd like to hear Asha's call to action for American citizens, it's a little surprising. Be sure to look for the bonus episode that will be coming later this week. Coming up next week on American Crisis, I talk with Carl Bernstein, the legendary Watergate reporter and the author and frequent commentator who continues to be a great journalist and one of the people whose work drew me into journalism many years ago. Carl's observations about the changes in media and in the way American government works from the time of Watergate when his stories were breaking in the 1970s to now are really compelling and pretty concerning as well. Carl will be talking about his guiding principle for all of his reporting throughout his career, which is trying to give the public what he calls the best obtainable version of the truth. I hope you'll listen in. In addition to the podcast, you can find the full American Crisis experience on my Substack, margaretsullivan at substack.com. Production services for American Crisis are provided by Voltage. It's produced by J.E. Peterson and edited and mixed by Tyler Morissette. The music for this show was composed by Crosstown Traffic. This is American Crisis. I'm Margaret Sullivan. Thanks for listening.